Father, yes, we do pray for grace to trust your son more. And thank you for your faithfulness and uh, that faithfulness and love and grace demonstrated in sending your only son for us. And if you would not spare your only son, how will you not give us all things? We thank you that there's nothing that can separate us from the love of your son. And so, Lord, as we look into your word, we pray that you would encourage us, that you would build us up, that you would help us to uh, see things from your perspective, that we would trust in your son, Jesus. We thank you for this time. We commit it to you now in his name. Amen. Well, as you all probably know by now, we are living in difficult times, times of great uncertainty, uncertainty about the impact of this virus on our health, the ones we love, our church, our country, uncertainty regarding our finances and jobs. Uh, We're seeing things in this generation that uh, we've never seen before. We've never seen the basic shutdown of our, our economy and the isolation of uh, a people. And what if, uh, what if I get it? What if you get it? What if my family gets it? What about my parents? What about money? Uh, what about the finances to get by? What about those who are on fixed incomes and retirement? What about their uh, finances? With the market plunge, uh, I could share so much more, Right? These are all questions that the world certainly has, but yet we might be tempted to focus on them also. Well, as believers, we know that we're to trust in the Lord Jesus, but we can be caught up in things, and we need to be encouraged to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. So today, I wanted to, we're, going to, we're continuing our break from 1 Thessalonians. I wanted to share a passage where we're going to see that no matter what evil comes upon us, God, for those who love him, uses it for good. And we're going to learn from Joseph's faith in a good and faithful God. Would you turn with us to Genesis chapter 50, the last uh, uh, book, last uh, chapter in the book of Genesis? And you might remember the context of the book of Genesis when we went through it uh, several years ago. I'm going to uh, just walk through that and then we'll get into our passage today. You might remember that Genesis was written by the living God through Moses. And that Genesis was written for the Israelites who were poised to enter the promised land. They had been a disorganized slave people who were miraculously delivered from their Egyptian bondage. And after the first disobedient generation died out in the wilderness, they were now poised to enter into the promised land. And within this, we need to understand that Genesis would certainly show these Jews who they were, how did they get to from where they were how the, to where they are now? Why are they God's chosen people? Why did they leave Egypt? Where are they going? Why is the land of Canaan so important for them to go in and to take? Yet within the very basics of how Israel got to the place where they were, there's a much grander theme threaded throughout the book of Genesis. Within this book, God has revealed the origin of, and creation of mankind with the initial blessing of God's perfect creation. And then he has revealed the loss of blessing through man's sinfulness, uh, man's disobedient choice, resulting in the fall of mankind, Genesis chapter 3. 
And yet, right away, we have salvation promised and pictured right away in Genesis chapter 3. And then within these first 11 chapters, we have the Lord revealing man's need of salvation. First and obviously, the fall, chapter 3. Then we have the development of sin as Cain murders Abel in chapter 4. Then we have the proliferation of worldwide sin and then God's divine intervention and judgment through the flood, chapter 6 through 9. And then after the flood, we have the revival of sin in the Tower of Babel, chapters 10 through 11, where we see the, the world again with the proliferation of it as the, as the world goes its own way. And then the Lord God scattering and temporarily abandoning the nations to idolatry, sending them their own way. Yet within these first 11 chapters, we see God's tremendous plan to bring forth through Eve's seed the crushing of Satan and to bring redemption from sin through that seed, Jesus Christ. Now what's interesting is that God gave us over a little over 2,000 years worth of information in the first 11 chapters. And yet from chapters 12 to 50 in Genesis, we only have a couple of hundred years relayed. So now in light of God's revealing man's need for salvation, we see God's salvation plan in chapter 12 begin to take effect through the promised one, the seed of Abraham, the one in whom through his seed all the nations would be blessed, that seed being Jesus Christ. And then after looking at the life of Abraham, the paradigm of faith, we see God's salvation plan move to his son Isaac through Jacob. And then as the text moves to the descendants of Jacob, primarily Joseph. The book of Genesis is about how sin entered into mankind and how man lost the blessed relationship with his creator and how God through Eve's seed would bring a redeemer, Jesus Christ. (coughs) in whom all the nations of the earth would have the opportunity to be blessed through the forgiveness of sins. So within this major theme, we see uh, pointed throughout pictures of what true faith looks like throughout Genesis, throughout this book, pictures of true, genuine faith. (coughs) The final chapter in the book of Genesis So turn with me to Genesis chapter 50. And I'm going to read, and we're going to see that God meant it for good. We're going to see lessons from Joseph's faith in a good and faithful God. I'm going to go back one verse, verse 14. And after he had buried his father, Joseph returned to Egypt, he and his brothers, and all who had gone up with him to bury his father. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said... What if Joseph should bear a grudge against us and pay us back for all the wrong which we did to him? So they sent a message to Joseph saying, Your father charged us before he died, saying, Thus you shall say to Joseph, Please forgive. I beg, please forgive, I beg you the transgression of your brothers and their sin, for they did you wrong. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the, of the God of your father. And Joseph wept uh, when he spoke to them. Then his brothers also came up and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not be afraid, for am I in God's place? And as for you, you meant evil against me. But God meant it for good 
in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. So therefore, do not be afraid. I will provide for you and your little ones. So he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Now Joseph stayed in Egypt, he and his father's household, and Joseph lived 110 years. And Joseph saw the third generation of Ephraim's sons and also the sons of Machar, the son of Manasseh, who were born on Joseph's knees. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will surely take care of you and bring you up from the land to to the land which he promised on, on oath to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely take care of you, and you shall carry my bones up from here. So Joseph died at the age of 110 years, and he was embalmed and placed in a coffin in Egypt. Now, as I mentioned, we're going to see today and look at the faith of Joseph. And what's interesting, in the New Testament, we only have him mentioned in four other places. He's mentioned in a secondary sense in John 4, 5. He's mentioned in a historical sense in Acts chapter 7. Uh, The tribe of Joseph is mentioned in Revelation chapter 7. And then we have only one passage that directly addresses Joseph's faith, and that is in Hebrews Chapter 11, verse 22. Turn there for a moment. Hebrews 11, verse 22. By faith, when he was dying, Joseph, when he was dying, made mention of the exodus of the sons of Israel and gave orders concerning his bones. Very interesting out of all the things that God could have testified of, Joseph could have commended him for, he commends him for this. He testifies of this Joseph's faith in this circumstance at the end of his life. Think about Joseph's life. He, God could have testified or commended him, which he did in Genesis, firstly, certainly for the suffering that he endured for many years. Or maybe for his morality in, in Christ, resisting the advances of Potiphar's wife. Or maybe for the wisdom he manifests in presenting a plan to Pharaoh to save Egypt from starvation. Or maybe the skill he exhibited in administering as the prime minister of Egypt. He could have commended him for his forgiveness of his brothers. All those things, wonderful things. And we know throughout Genesis the Lord was with Joseph. He's a true believer and he was following the Lord. But yet, what we see in Hebrews 11 is in direct correlation to his faith in what God had promised. What God wants to reveal about Joseph is very important. Remember, Hebrews chapter 11, 6, it is impossible without faith to please him. You see, what pleases God is faith in him, believing in him and what he has said. And what we see today directly correlates to what God says about him in Hebrews chapter 11. Therefore, what God deems the most important thing in the life of his children is faith in him, as we'll see. And so with this in mind, we come to the end of the book of Genesis, and it is here in this last portion of chapter 50, we're going to see two specific things. 
First of all, that our faith must be grounded in the character and sovereignty of God or who he is. And secondly, our faith must be founded in the promises of God. Not in our will, our desires, or whatever's around, but in the promises of God. So then, let's begin our look at the life of Joseph. Notice, first of all, when it comes to faith, as I mentioned, our faith must be grounded in the character, the personhood, what God has revealed about himself and his sovereignty. Notice Joseph responds to his brother's fear of retaliation by revealing his faith in the sovereignty of God and then graciously comforting them. Go back to verse 14. And after he had buried his father, that's Joseph, Joseph returned to Egypt, he and his brothers and all who had gone up with him to bury his father. Jacob had died after living 17 years in the land of Egypt. And according to the promise that Joseph had made to him, he brought Jacob's body back to the land of Canaan and buried him. And here there was a great company of the highest Egyptian officials, and Joseph's brothers went also, and they brought the body of Jacob to Canaan, and they buried him. And it is after this they all returned to Egypt. At this point, we see the concern of Joseph's brothers. They're fearful that Joseph might retaliate against them for all the evil they had done towards him. Look at verse 15. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, What if Joseph should bear a grudge against us and pay back in full for all the wrong which we had did to him? Here again, we have the admission of the wickedness and wrongdoing that Joseph's brothers brought upon Joseph. Indeed, in chapter 37, when Joseph was only 17, they were jealous and they desired to murder Joseph. They threw him in a pit. They were callous to the distress of his soul, his cries for help. And then they decided to profit off of Joseph instead and sold him into slavery. And that led to many years of slavery in Egypt, which God ultimately used for good. The reality is they had wronged him big time. And they understood this now. And now that Jacob is dead, they're concerned Joseph might bear a grudge and pay them back in full for what they did. So obviously they haven't come to know Joseph fully yet. But they are guilty. And that guilt is coming to bear on them. And they begin to fear that Joseph might return evil, really, for evil. And Joseph is certainly in a power, a position of power, being the prime minister of Egypt, to do so. So what do the brothers do? Verse uh, 16. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, Your father charged before he died saying, Charged before, uh, before he died saying, Thus you shall say to Joseph, Please forgive. I beg you the transgression of your brothers and their sin. For they did you wrong. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. And Joseph wept when they spoke to him. Now, when I initially read this and other times I've thought this, that maybe these brothers are making up this thing that the father charged just to try to get out of this because they're concerned, and that's possible. But the text doesn't really reveal anything about them lying here. So it's quite possible Jacob, knowing that uh, they had wronged him, might have done that. Either way, they certainly recognize their sin and they want to be assured 
that Joseph, who has great power over them, has forgiven them and that he will not retaliate. And so how does Joseph respond? End of 17, and Joseph wept when they spoke to him. Joseph's a good guy. The Lord is with him. He had a sensitive heart, as we'll see, a forgiving heart, a heart that manifests God's grace and kindness, even in the midst of great wrong against him personally. Joseph was truly moved. He had suffered greatly because of what they had done to him. But Joseph had forgiven them, and he, and he did not hold a grudge against them. But yet here he is emotionally moved again over their acknowledgement of their sin against him. Indeed, his life for many, many years had been very difficult because of the evil precipitated against him by his brothers. So what happens? Verse 18. Then his brothers also came and fell down before him. They had the message before. Now they're coming personally before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. They sent the message asking forgiveness for their great sin, and now they're coming before him, and they humbled themselves. Behold, we are your servants. And I really do believe these brothers understood their sin, and they had confessed it. We see that earlier in Genesis. Yet they are concerned that Joseph might retaliate, so they humble themselves. And how does Joseph respond? Notice he graciously responds, revealing a great trust in the Lord and understands the Lord's sovereignty over things, that they did mean it for evil, but God meant it for good. But Joseph said to them, Do not be afraid, for am I in God's place? As for you, you meant it for evil against me. But God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. So therefore, do not be afraid. I will provide for you and your little ones. So he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. This is the amazing climax of the book of Genesis, where again we see genuine faith manifest in Joseph. And it's here we come across and are reminded of some incredible truths in Scripture concerning the sovereignty of God over evil. The brothers are concerned because of their great evil. They precipitated against Joseph that he might retaliate, bearing a grudge. And they have confessed their sin, humbled themselves. And how does Joseph respond? Verse 19, But Joseph said to them, Do not be afraid, for am I in God's place? Now, it's interesting. He's going to give them two reasons here why they shouldn't be afraid. The first reason is is quite amazing here. Joseph certainly has learned that it is not his place or any man's place to act as judge concerning sin in the life of others. And I'm going to explain that. You might say, wait a second, what about admonishing one another to deal with sin in each other believer's lives? We'll get to that in a minute. I think what Joseph is saying here is, you do not need to be afraid. I am not the judge. God is. God is. And brothers and sisters, we need to come to a place of understanding based on the word of God, having a right view of who he is, that God is the judge, that he is the one who will bring forth uh, vengeance and retribution to those who have truly not repented. And Joseph understood this. Very important. If you don't understand this, you'll never be set free. You'll never, you'll never be able to forgive. 
What does the Apostle Paul say in Romans chapter 12? Flip over to Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12, we're going to look at verse 17. And chapter 12 is really the beginning of the application to the gospel. We've seen earlier to offer yourselves as living sacrifices to renew your minds and then to love one another by serving one another. And then notice what we see in Romans chapter 12, verse 17. Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. If possible, so as far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you'll heap burning coals upon his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. It is not our place to judge and repay for one's sin. That is God's place. In fact, he is the avenger of those who do evil. We see this in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, and I'll read this for you. Verse 3, For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that is, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in lustful passion like the Gentiles who do not know God. And then listen to this. And that no man transgress and defraud his brother in the matter, because the Lord is the avenger of all these things. Just as we also told you before and sovereignly warned you. The idea of the Lord being the avenger is that he will judge righteously. He will avenge sinners for their sin. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 4, Let marriage be held in honor, and all let all marriage bed be undefiled. For fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. It is not within the sphere of mankind to be the avenger of sin. As, but there's some exceptions I'll share in a minute. God is the judge, and Joseph understood this. Back in our passage, but Joseph said to them, Do not be afraid, for am I in God's place? And obviously it's in regards to their sin against Joseph. They're evil. Now again, it is not our position to punish anyone for their sin, by the way. Now I need to clarify. We do make judgments in the body of Christ concerning uh, uh, sin for the sake of restoration, reconciliation, and protection of the body of Christ. 1 Corinthians 5, Matthew 18, Galatians 6, 1 Thessalonians 5, Romans 16, Titus 3. We do admonish, we make judgments, we may need to separate temporarily, but we are not the judge. We do not pronounce judgment or the sentence. We do not punish for sin. That's God's place. Do not be afraid, for am I in God's place? Now, it's true that God has placed men and women in the position of government to bring forth judgment and punishment concerning evil. Romans chapter 13, God, but as we'll see in Romans 13, God is the one pronouncing that. He is the one who is behind it. Turn just briefly to Romans chapter 13. And this is a good passage for us as we're all needing to submit for this coronavirus thing. I'd love to have you all here, but yet the government says, no, we can't do that. And so we're not doing that. And this isn't causing us to sin. 
It's only when the government would tell us not to speak of Jesus. We see in Acts chapter, uh, the early chapters of Acts, we would then have to disobey. But otherwise, we're going to submit. Because God is the one behind it. Romans 13.1 Let every person be in subjection to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God except those who exist and, with, and those who exist are established by God. Therefore, he who resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and they have opposed, who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for, for, for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For it is a minister, it's a, it's a minister of God to you for good. But if you wish to do what is evil, be afraid. For it does not bear the sword. The sword is for killing, by the way. The sword for nothing. For it is a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath upon the one who practices evil. Now you say, what about Joseph? He was a minister in that sense. Well, they had not done this while he was prime minister. This was when he was young. So he says, do not be afraid. For am I in God's place? Am I in God's place? We do not judge or punish anyone for their sin. We are not to return evil for evil. We leave room for the wrath of God. Yes, we make judgments concerning sin in the body of Christ for the sake of restoration, reconciliation, and protection, but we are not those who judge and pronounce the sentence and punish. Joseph understood this. And when we understand it, there's a great release of concern concerning what happened to us. Because God will make it right, no matter how much you've been wronged. We need not retaliate, and we are not to retaliate, because God is a judge. Do not be afraid, for am I in God's place? Brother and sister, do you leave room for the wrath of God, and hopefully repentance before that wrath? Is there anyone in your life you're effectively punishing for their sin through your actions and attitudes because of their sin against you? Leave room for God's wrath, but hopefully restoration before that. Forgive, pray, and leave room for the wrath of God. And again, I'm not speaking about addressing things that would cause temporal biblical separations in relationships, righteous boundaries in that sense from the scriptures. But maybe someone has sinned against you. Maybe it's when you were young, someone sinned greatly against you, and you are punishing them with your hard attitude. You're punishing. Are you in God's place? Be set free like Joseph and forgive and let God take care of it. Let God take care of it. You know, there's a lot of Christians who say they trust the Lord, and they probably do in most areas of their lives, but they've got issues with things that happen to them, whatever it might be, and they just are not letting them go. Joseph didn't let it go in the sense of you didn't do it. Yes, you did it, as we'll see for evil. You wronged me. But God's the one. He's in charge. And Joseph was gracious to them. What a difference. That's the way we should be as believers. And just maybe God might use that to change their hearts that they might be saved before that wrath would come upon them. Let it go. Let it go. That's forgiving. Let it go. Put it in God's hands. Forgive them. Do not be afraid. How nice, how wonderful this is, how gracious. For I'm in God's place. 
Well, for those who don't repent, God is the judge. As we'll say, he is the judge regardless, but he will judge. If you uh, do not repent of your sins, God will judge you. And those who have sinned against you, if they do not repent of their sin, God will judge them. He is the judge. There's many passages about judgment in Scripture. I'm going to read a couple. Because Joseph understood this, that God is the one who will deal with it. Joseph didn't need to discern whether their uh, forgiveness was true or not, whether it was or not. He knew God would take care of it. God's the judge. Turn to Matthew chapter 11, verse 20. This is speaking of Jesus. Then he began to reproach the cities in which most of his miracles were done because they what? Did not repent. That's the key. Woe to you, Chorazin, woe to you, Bethsaida, for if the miracles had occurred in Tyre and Sidon, which occurred in you, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. Nevertheless, I say to you, it should be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, will, you, will not be exalted to heaven, will you? You shall descend to Hades. For if the miracles that had occurred in Sodom, which occurred in you, uh, had occurred in you, it would have remained to this day. It says, Nevertheless, I say to you, it shall be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. There's judgment coming for those who do not repent of their sin. God is going to deal with man's sin, including sin that has been precipitated against you personally. Joseph understood this. What about Acts chapter 17, verse 30? I'll read this. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, Paul says, God is now declaring to men that all everywhere should repent because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. John chapter 5. I'm not going to read it for you, but you can read it, that God has given all judgment over to the Son. We see in Revelation chapter 20 a great white throne and we have Christ on the throne putting forth judgment for all who have not repented, all whose names are not in the book of life through faith in Jesus Christ. What does Solomon say in the end of Ecclesiastes? He says in verse 13 of chapter 12, the conclusion when all has been heard is fear God and keep his commandments. Because this applies to every person. For God will bring every act into judgment, everything which is hidden, whether it is good or evil. Oh, for some of you, that should just relieve everything because you have been the one judging those around you, punishing them with your attitudes or actions towards them for their sin, rather than being Christ-like and leaving it in his hands and having biblical boundaries that honor and glorify God in the context of forgiveness. There's judgment, but yet there's good news. That God poured forth his wrath on his son Jesus Christ in our place. Jesus Christ died for our sins. He took the cup of God's wrath. And if you are willing to turn to Jesus Christ, acknowledging your sin, and call out for the forgiveness of your sins in your heart of hearts, believing he died for your sins and rose from the dead... Whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved, and you will be delivered from God's judgment 
condemning judgment because of sin. And that's our desire for anyone who has harmed us, first and foremost, that they would be forgiven. But if not, God is judge. He's going to take care of it. He's going to take care of it. But one last thing we do need to recognize as I'm talking about judgment right now is that there is judgment for believers, no, not for sin, but for what we do in the body right now before we go to see the Lord. 1 Corinthians 3 makes it clear that each man's work will be evident. The day will show it. If any man's work has been built upon remains, he shall receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he shall suffer loss. Romans chapter 14, verse 10. But why do you judge your brother? Or again, why do you regard your brother with contempt? Now again, I'm not talking about biblical judgments we make for protection, reconciliation, and restoration. That's different. These are judgments concerning their sin. And he says there, if we shall all stand, Romans chapter 14, if we shall all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall give praise to God. So then each one shall give an account of himself to God. One last passage, 2 Corinthians 5, verse 9. I'll read it. Therefore, we also have as our ambition, as our ambition, whether at home or absent, that means dead or alive, to be pleasing to him. Remember, we can't please him apart from faith. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. So then Joseph had a very important and right understanding of God. God is the one who judges sin. He says, am I in God's place? Don't be afraid, for am I in God's place? Well, hopefully none of you are standing in God's place in the way you are treating people with your heart attitude or actions that have sinned against you. May you forgive them and leave it in God's hands. So then notice what Joseph says. He says in verse 20, back in our passage, And as for you, you meant evil against me. He doesn't forget it. It's true. But God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. So therefore, don't be afraid. God is taking your evil and making it for good. That's what he did. God is the judge, and he turned it to good. So don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Two things, two reasons why they are not to be afraid of Joseph retaliating. Joseph's not going to retaliate because he knows two things. God is the judge and also God even used their evil for good. That changes our hearts and our attitudes if we see things rightly. Don't forget those two things. We have the tremendous second reality here concerning his understanding of the sovereignty of God. As for you... You meant evil against me. He doesn't say you didn't do it. I've forgotten it all. No, it actually happened. But he's forgiven them. But God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. Now, some of you want that good to come about right away and you don't trust the Lord and what has Joseph trusted the Lord. It took many, many years for this good to come out of that evil, by the way. You may have been wronged very badly through the people closest to you. That was Joseph's people closest to him. 
And God is going to use it for good. We're going to see that to those who love him, to those who are called according to his purpose. You see, God is sovereign over everything. Now, what is God's sovereignty? It speaks of his absolute power, authority over all things. It speaks of the reality that he is in charge of everything. And he is within that a good God. And so we see in the context, the evil that man does, God sovereignly turns to good. And Joseph understood this. He believed it. And if you understand that, you will be set free, like Joseph was, to relate graciously to those who had harmed him. You'll be set free, not in bondage to your attitudes towards those who hurt you, but free to express uh, God's character to those who were in desperate need of salvation. You meant it for evil, that's the truth. But notice Joseph doesn't suggest at all. He doesn't sugarcoat, he doesn't give excuses. He doesn't say, uh, you were young and foolish and dad didn't train us and, you know, dad was uh, partial. We know that. He didn't say, you know, uh, you had a bad childhood with your two moms, you know, Rachel and Leah arguing all the time, right? He says flat out, you meant it for evil. That's the truth. You're fully responsible for what you did, but God meant it for good. Tremendous. God meant it for good. God took all the evil that Joseph's brothers had brought upon him and turned it for good. The good would be the preservation of many alive. The present result that they're living in. You did horribly evil things to me, but God took it over a long time and brought about good. The saving of many people, including yourselves, the very ones who did this evil. God used that very evil to preserve them. Quite amazing. Preserve them from death through starvation in the context of uh, Genesis. And brothers and sisters, when we understand by faith that every situation of evil that comes our way, especially precipitated through evil men and women, if we love the Lord God and trust him, he's going to turn it for good eventually. This will change your attitude and outlook towards everything but we've got to have our hearts renewed we will stop complaining about things we'll stop hating we'll stop living in unforgiveness feeling sorry for ourselves because we know at some time in the future god will turn it to evil to turn evil to good we had this read earlier for us romans 8 28 that god causes all things to work together for good now there's a qualification there to those who love God. Now, we only love God because he first loved us. You can't truly love God apart from being changed by the God who loved you first through sending his son. To those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. And we know, brothers and sisters, we know this. We know this. But yet, for those who don't know Christ, everything that's happening in your life is not working together for good at this point unless God eventually saves you. It's actually, you're actually storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath. But yet, for believers, God causes all things to work together for good. We need to remember this in real time as we look at it in the life of Joseph. 
You see, God is in the process of making us more like Christ, and he uses the difficulties of evil that comes upon us to do that. That's why we can exalt in our tribulations, Romans chapter 5. That's why we can count it all joy, James chapter 1. And it's only when we see things this way through God's sovereign, loving hand, causing it all for good, eventually we know that, that we can respond differently to evil situations. But you've got to believe it. You've got to believe it. I was going to read this, but I had uh, Kelly read it earlier, Romans chapter 8. Just read through that. Nothing's going to separate us from the love of God. Persecution, famine, distress, tribulation, coronavirus. It's not in there, but it implies nothing. Right? In all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. Nothing is going to separate us from the love of Christ, the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. The pressure's off. We can leave everything in the Lord's hands and by faith know he's doing good. And the greatest example of that is the greatest evil, what Satan brought about when the Son of God was crucified. But God's plan, predetermined, overrode everything to bring about salvation through his son, Jesus Christ. The greatest evil turned to good. So we can respond differently to bad circumstances, trials, sickness, famine, disease, especially when those treat us wrongly. And we are able to respond from the heart. Notice Joseph's understanding and thus forgiveness paved the way for graciousness. There's where you know you're really believing the truth, by the way. Look at this, verse uh, 19. But Joseph said, Do not be afraid, for I am in God's place. As for you, you meant it for evil against me. But God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result, to preserve many people alive. So therefore, because God's the judge and he's turning it to good, so therefore, don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your little ones. So he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. When's the last time you were kind to those who hurt you so badly? Maybe people sinned against you right now, maybe little things, and you don't speak kindly to them because you're holding it against them. You gotta let it go. Forgive. Let God take care of that. I'm not talking about not having biblical boundaries and applying scripture rightly, but in, just in our relationships. He says, I will provide. Do not be afraid. I will provide for you and your little ones. How gracious is that? So he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Joseph is truly not bitter or angry. He's not the judge. God is. And he knows all the evil precipitated against him. God turned to good. He sees things rightly and therefore he can respond rightly. And God's grace through that flows to these brothers and their families. He spoke kindly to them. He's going to take care of them. Is there any situation in your life that maybe you've been wrong, that you haven't uh, responded rightly in? Little ones, big ones. Those who have maybe sinned against you. Little sins, big sins. You know, love covers a multitude of sins, by the way. Don't forget that. And again, I'm not talking about compromising the principles of Scripture and how we relate to those believers who might be in sin. 
I'm talking about forgiving and praying for and leaving room for the wrath of God, but hopefully reconciliation through forgiveness. That God's going to take care of everything. He's doing good. And this leads me to depend upon him and enables me to respond graciously. We need to remember this because we fall so greatly when we are wronged or when we're fearful about circumstances, whatever it might be. Any area you need to confess? Now, some of you are not believers, and you need to be afraid because God is the judge. But yet he sent his son. The same judge came in grace first and died for your sins. Turn to Jesus today and be forgiven. So then, we see our faith must be grounded in the character and sovereignty of God. That's the context here. He's the judge, and he also does good with what happens to us. And then lastly, as we finish up here, notice our faith must be founded in the promises of God. It's got to be founded in what he has said and promised. Notice while dying, Joseph exhibits faith in God's promise to bring the Israelites back to Canaan. By the way, Joseph had faith, as we will see, in a promise that would not be fulfilled in his lifetime. And there are many promises that God has for us that are not going to be fulfilled in our lifetime. But Joseph exhibited faith in that, and it changed his attitude and actions. And he is commended by God and testified to by God in this circumstance. Verse 22, Now Joseph stayed in Egypt, he and his father's household, and Joseph lived 110 years. And Joseph saw the third generation of Ephraim's sons, also the sons of Machar, the son of Manasseh, who were born on Joseph's knees. We see that Joseph and his father's household, that would include all his brothers and descendants, verse 22, stayed in Egypt. And Joseph lived 110 years. Remember, Joseph was brought to Egypt in chains when he was 17 years old. And Joseph was so blessed to see the descendants of his sons to the third generation. We see that. And then notice, as Joseph is dying, he will declare faith in the promises of God to care for and bring Israel back to Canaan. Faith in God's loving care for his people and his promises being fulfilled, what he had promised for them. Verse uh, 24, and Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will surely take care of you. Isn't that great? This is the part where Joseph is commended for. He's going to take care of you. He's going to fulfill his promise to get you back to the land. God's going to take care of you. We need to have faith that God's going to take care of each one of us, no matter what happens to us in the midst of all that's going on. Notice he says here, God will surely take care of you. And look at the end of our middle of 25. Again, God will surely take care of you. Oh, don't forget that, brothers and sisters. For us as believers, we know that, according to his promises, God will take care of you. So he says, and he will bring you up from this land, middle of verse 24, to the land which he promised an oath to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Hey, God is going to keep his promises. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear by saying, God will surely take care of you and shall carry, you shall carry my bones up from here. Here we come to the portion that God testifies of Joseph in Hebrews chapter 11. This is the portion that God wants us to know from the New Testament pleases him. Pleases him. Hebrews 11.22, I'll read it again. 
by faith, when he was dying, Joseph, by faith, Joseph, when he was dying, made mention of the exodus of the sons of Israel and gave orders concerning his bones. He believed what God had promised Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And inherent in those promises is what he would do in Christ. But he would bring them back to Canaan, the land and the seed. Joseph believed it, even though it would not be fulfilled within his time. But he even ordered his bones to be taken back there because he believed and understood that God would bring them out. He would bring them out. And so God testifies of his faith. Of his faith. Tremendous faith in the yet unfulfilled promises of God. Do you have faith in the unfulfilled promises of God? That God is faithful, that you will arrive safely in his heavenly kingdom? That God is faithful? That God will take care of you all the way to that point? The term take care in this phrase means to be visited. God is going to visit you. He's going to tenderly care for you personally. And that's what he's going to do. Joseph says, 24, I'm about to die, but God will surely take care of you. Amen. That's faith. And bring you up from this land to the land which he promised in oath to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob. Joseph, by faith, as we saw in Hebrews, made mention of the Exodus. He believed the promise. Believe God's promises, brothers and sisters. Joseph trusted in God's sovereignty. And he believed God's promises. And you do that, you're going to make it just fine through this coronavirus. You believe in what God has promised. So keep your eyes on that. And you trust that he's working it for good no matter what happens. You're going to be fine. God will take care of you. Joseph made mention of this. Now where did Joseph hear of this promise of God? It's quite apparent that it was what was spoken to Abraham and to Isaac and Jacob was then relayed to Joseph. We have in Genesis chapter 15, I'll read it for you, verse 13, And God said to Abram, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that's not theirs, where they will be enslaved and oppressed for 400 years. But I will also judge the nation whom they will serve, and afterwards they will come out with many possessions. That was God's promise. Joseph believed it. It said, God's going to take care of you and he's going to bring you back to the Canaan. And then Joseph, notice, you see the faith continues. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, God is surely going to take care of you and you shall carry my bones up from here. You need to declare that God is going to take care of you, surely. And you need to carry my bones back there because he's going to bring you out as he promised. He's going to do that. That's faith. By faith, Joseph, when he was dying, made mention of the Exodus and the sons of Israel and God and gave orders concerning his bones. Joseph's very coffin, which contained his bones, would be a symbol of his faith that God would be faithful to his promise to bring the nation of Israel out of Egypt to the promised land. We see this in Exodus chapter 13 and Joshua 24 that the Israelites did carry his bones and bury them in the land of Canaan which means they were certainly aware of this charge that he had made, which manifests the faith that he had that God would take care of them and deliver them. 
you can look at that. And I shall read Exodus 13:19. And Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, for he had made the sons of Israel swear solemnly, saying, God shall surely take care of you. You shall carry my bones from here with you. Exodus 13:19. Joshua 24:32. Now they buried the bones of Joseph, which the sons of Israel brought up from Egypt at Shechem, in the place of ground which Jacob had bought for the, from the sons of Hamor, the father of Shechem. For 100 pieces of money, for they became an inheritance to Joseph's sons. So then, Joseph exhibits great faith by charging the sons of Israel. And then notice he dies. Verse 26. So Joseph died at the age of 110 years, and he was embalmed and placed in a coffin in Egypt. Brothers and sisters, we need to believe what God says. That's true faith. We need to believe his promises that are rightly applied to our hearts and lives. This portion of Joseph's life uh, came to an end, and in the end of his life, he revealed his great faith again by believing what God had said, that God would take care of them and bring them back. Brother and sister, Joseph, believe the word of God. If you believe the word of God, then you're going to be able to react differently to people around you and situations around you differently. You need to also understand his sovereignty, that he turns evil to good. Be like Joseph. Believe what God says. Brothers and sisters, in this time where we don't know what's going to happen, it's unsure, finances, health, whatever it is, it's, if you think about it, you're going to go crazy. We don't know what's going to happen, but we do know that God has promised us that he will deliver us safely to his eternal kingdom. We know that God has promised us to take care of us on the way. And we know that God is turning all things together for good. Are you struggling? Get back in the word of God and see what God has promised. Get back in the word of God and see what he is really like and trust in him. So coming to the end of the book here of Genesis, what do we have? We have death. We have death. You might remember what the devil uh, said back in Genesis 3. To Eve, you'll not surely die. It's not true. Sin brings death. But through Eve's seed, Jesus Christ, we have the possibility of eternal life. Trust in him. Believe in him, be saved. And if you have been saved, trust in him. Believe his promises. And that should cause us to treat people around us differently. When they sin against us, it should cause us to think differently in the midst of all this uncertainty. God will take care of you. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for this reminder. Lord, thank you for Joseph and his faith in you, his believing of your promises, his understanding your sovereignty. Lord, please, may we be the same. May we be the same. May we not cower in fear and concern over all that is going on around us. May we, when we're tempted, which we all are, may we renew our minds with these truths we have seen today. May it be said of us by you, Lord God, that we, by your grace and power, trusted you that we were faithful not because of ourselves but because of you in the midst of all this uncertainty 
that we trusted a faithful God who is good and turning things to good. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.